That's good. Not to pump you guys up or anything. Y'all have a great time back there. Don't pay attention to anything I say. Just keep walking. Good job. That's my son. He has to hear me, I think. That's by law. Man, it's good to be here today. Um, yeah, it's just been a good week. Uh, we've, uh, we've had a lot of busyness this week. Um, and man, people are afraid of these seats. Like, I don't know what it is. Some weeks we have glitter in chairs, but I don't think we do this week, so that's not it. So it must be something else. We'll dig into that, but not today. Um, but yeah, it's good to be here. We've had a busy week at the uh, City Workspace, which is what it's going to be called, the space a couple blocks down the road that we've been working on getting ready. Uh, a couple things will happen in that space that could affect you. We'll have a community group that'll be meeting there. So if you live within walking distance of here on Sundays and you want to live within walking distance of a community group, right there. Uh, we will have our first Origins Youth Community Group, which is going to be like seventh grade and up. That's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy. There'll be pizza, um, things like that. And uh, pizza and Jesus, like you can't go wrong. And so that's going to be over there too. We're excited about that. And then a couple other things too, like once it opens, like if you work remotely and you just want to have a place to come and sit and work during the day, there'll be coffee. And, and you just come, you sit, you have coffee, you work, Wi-Fi, we got that stuff. It's amazing what technology is. There's even a printer. I mean, you can print stuff on paper. It's great. I mean, that's high tech. That's high tech. So we're going to be there. So we're looking forward to that. And then in addition, just the ways that we can serve our city and love our city. We're, we're excited about that. So thank you guys for being generous, um, allowing us to do this. And um, man, we will have our 14th birthday in October as a church, and we've never had a brick-and-mortar place that we could go to any day of the week. So, so we're a little bit excited. Um, so thank you, everybody, that, that came and uh, inhaled a lot of dust yesterday. And thanks for people that have torn down walls. Thanks for people that have done all that. This week, uh, paint will happen. So if you're good with paint, even if you're just mediocre, we'll take that too. Um, we're painting before we put the flooring down, so that's wise. And so you can't really mess it up too bad. Um, and if you do, we'll still love you because there's grace. And so that's good. But yeah, if you want to do that, and if you're also good at laying down uh, flooring and you'd like to do that, we'd love to have you. If, if, you're, if you're good with a miter saw and know how to do trim really well, we'll take that. We're going to need that. And then, uh, yeah, just creative touches. So anyway, enough with that. Today we're back in the book of Philippians. We have this week and next week, and we will wrap up Paul's letter to Philippi. Um, today, it's, it's kind of his, uh, Paul's kind of landing the plane. And so this is kind of parting wisdom part one is what we're going to look at today. Um, thanks for Zach last week uh, teaching with us and, and teaching for us and just reminding us that uh, there's, there's this life in Jesus that we get to contend with, that we get to press on for. And, and the prize, to be honest, is not a payout like we've ever seen. The prize is Jesus. And so that's a big deal. And so also just this idea of uh, we also have the privilege of letting other people pour into us. There are people in our life that we see that are worth imitating, even though they're human, they're flawed. They've understood what Paul did, that he's not there yet. He's not accomplishing this on his own. And so in that light, like we have to take this idea too and just admit it to ourselves. Like this life that we're living, we're not capable of living it perfectly. Uh, Jesus has already done that. So we get to rest in him and his perfection, his righteousness, and also get to look to other people that are doing that well. So um, today is kind of, to me, this is a lot like, you know, those first few road trips you took as a teenager and, you know, you, you weren't, you weren't driving very long. I remember my first one was to a summer camp, like between my junior and senior year. And I had an amazing, uh, mercury topaz. 
That was my first car. It was blue, and it was a salvage car. My parents knew a body, you know, a body shop guy, and he would get wrecked cars that were totaled, and he'd repair them, and then he'd sell them for a cheap and fair price. Uh, had great paint, but that's the only thing that it had that was great. The rest of it was pretty terrible. It was a three-speed automatic transmission, which I don't know if you know what that means, but that means it's 70 miles an hour. It sounds like this. You know, it's really loud. And so, but either way, I remember before that first road trip to a camp during the summer, like the checklist that your parents would have for you. You know, they'd be like, do you have this? Do you have this? Remember this? Remember this? If you go to a rest stop, make sure you look around. You know, all of these things. Don't take candy from strangers. You know, they've been telling me that for a long time. Uh, but just all of these things. And Paul's kind of doing that now. Like, he's not about to send them off on a road trip, but he's in prison, and he's writing to them 800 miles away. Um, it takes a while for letters to get there. He's gotten some news from them, and so he's about to wrap up his letter. And so he's giving them just some, some parting advice kind of a thing. Like, I've, I've told you all these things. I've told you about where I am, what God's doing through that. I've conveyed great truth in that. I've encouraged you to continue. Again, the whole book of Philippi compared to the other epistles, like it's incredibly encouraging because this church had a special place in Paul's heart and in Paul's life. And so he's encouraged them a lot, but he's encouraged them with like deep theological, meaningful truth. And in this case, he's, he's going to do that, but he's not going to do it like in depth the way that he did before. He's just going to kind of mention some things and move on, mention, move on. And so that's kind of the way we're going to look at it, except the, the first section that we'll talk about a bit more. And so if we can, let's pray, and then we'll jump in, and we'll re- be in chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, if you have your Bibles. If not, it's going to be on the screen. If you need a hardback Bible, there's some on the table, free to take those, make them your own, write in them, do all of that stuff. So let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Um, God, thank you that it's trustworthy. Um, God, thank you that uh, you use it to draw men and women to yourself, but you also use it to refine them after they've called you Savior and God the Father, Spirit and Dweller. God, you use it to, to make us look more and more like your perfect Son. Um, God, thank you that we don't have to trust in our perfection, but we get to rely fully in His. Um, today, God, as we look at what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, God, I pray that we would see the truth that it represents for us too, um, that it's more than advice, but it's These are words based on life that we get to live by. Uh, Thank you for loving us, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So chapter 4, starting in verse 2, Zach wrapped up with 4.1 last week. I know that's a little bit weird, but just just in the grand scheme of things, it fits better with that previous section than it does with this. So we're going to read 2 through 9. It says, I entreat uh, Euodia and Syntyche, or Syntyche, depending on which school of Greece you went to. But anyway, it's a different name that we don't hear that often. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion or fellow yokesman, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Before we continue with the rest, um, a lot, of, a lot of commentators are going to read this, and because it sticks out a little bit, because Paul does name a few people by name. And he also, again, this book's been very encouraging, encouraged to continue, but in this moment, he's, he's calling a couple women to task to a degree. Uh, the way these letters probably would have worked is they would have gone to the leadership of the local church at the time, the church at Philippi, which would have been a collection of house churches. They didn't have a temple or anything like that. They broke bread in their homes. They worshiped together. They read together. And so this letter, to a degree, would have been a bit circular. And so it would probably have gone from a kind of house church to house church to house church in which they would have read it out loud. And these house churches probably had, at this point, this is 
10 some odd years after Paul encountered these, these folks at Philippi the first time, they probably would have had some type of central organized leadership, uh, you know, elders, pastors, teachers, deacons, all of those types of things. And so this letter would have been read aloud, most likely, in all of those little house churches or in the collection. And so at some point, these women would have heard their names read out loud. Okay, and we don't know a couple things about these first few verses. Number one, he, he calls someone my fellow worker, my fellow yokesman, or you who's yoked like I am that works with me, basically under the same yoke of Jesus, which is a burden, but it's lightness easy, according to Matthew. And he said, you know, uh, I want to encourage uh, Euodia and Syntyche, or Syntyche, I want to encourage them to agree. Somehow, some way, news had reached Paul that these two women, who were not unknown women, they were most likely leaders within this church at Philippi, they had had some type of disagreement. They weren't getting along. And so before he goes into kind of his parting advice, uh, he, he takes a moment to address them and address what needs to happen with them. A lot of commentators read these few verses and they say, you know what, here's what we think. We think this is the entire point of this entire book. We think this is the entire point of this entire book. And they think that Paul kind of pulled a Nathan the way that he did with David, um, reaching all the way back to 2 Samuel. When David sinned, um, Nathan, the prophet, goes to David and he kind of tells him a story. He's like, David, I got to tell you, there's these two men and they've done some crazy things. And basically the story that he tells him is about David, but David doesn't know it. And David issues kind of judgment against the guy who had greatly wronged the other. And David's like, well, that guy, he needs to be punished. And Nathan's like, oh, by the way, that guy is you. And that's how David's sin was pointed out. A lot of people think when reading this that everything that's preceded these few verses all of Paul's teachings on humility, all of Paul's teachings on wearing the mind of Jesus, on viewing others as more important than yourself, as serving humbly, all of these things, suffering in light of grace because of grace, all of those things. Some people think that it was all just to get to this point so that he could point out to these women, by the way, all of these things that you've been hearing and agreeing with, they're good, right? You need to do them. You need to do them. And it makes really good sense. Like, it makes really good sense. And he wasn't, being, he wasn't being tricky or circuitous. He wasn't being any of those things, but he was just kind of like, yeah, I've pointed out things that you, as mature believers, you would hear and you'd kind of hold up your hand and be like, yes, that's really good. But then he gets to the point, and he's like, and you two ladies who are co-laborers in the gospel, who have done so many great things right by my side, you're fighting, and you just need to stop. Remember all those things you agreed with, all those things that you would have pumped your hand at, been like, yeah, that's really good, Paul. You know, all of those things like, you need to keep those in mind now and you need to agree. You need to stop fighting. Because one thing that he was pointing out in the midst of this is like the labor that they have entered into in the name of Jesus, it's far more important than their disagreement. It's far more important than their, their disagreement. And so he says, Euodia, Syntyche, Agree in the Lord. I entreat you, I beg you, I implore you from a humble heart. I'm not commanding you. I'm asking in the name of Jesus, stop fighting. Stop fighting. Now, if we were going to spend the whole time here, I would, just, I would say this right here. And we're going to move on. We're not just going to spend the whole time here. Um, if we're going to spend the whole time here, I would say in family, 
in the context of family, what God is building, there will be times in which um, we're hurt, we're injured, we're offended. That's what family does. Like the people that you are closest to will hurt you the most deeply. And that's the way it works. Why? Because they know you best. You know them best. You love them deeply. And when they say something that somebody else, a stranger, could say, and it would be minorly hurtful when they say it, a stranger, but when someone in family hurts says it, you're like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. We immediately go hair on standing up and, and fist clenched. We're like, how dare you? But here's what I would say to all of that. The labor is far more important than the disagreement. What we're working for outweighs any offense within family. What we're working for outweighs any offense within family. And so when that happens, instead of letting it fester and stew and put off all kind of steam and aroma, good, bad, ugly, just deal with it. Just deal with it. That's what family does. That's what family does. We just go, and, and it may be one of two lines. It may be um, what you said, what you did, that, that hurt me. And I just wanted to let you know. I love you enough to tell you. And their response may be, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? It may be that. It could be something different. That's a perfect world scenario. Um, or it could even start like this. I know that what I said, what I did, it hurt you. Please forgive me. One or the other. The labor is more important than the offense. So deal with the offense. Continue with the labor. Deal with the offense. Continue with the labor. And so then, after he's entreating them, begging them, imploring them in the name of Jesus, um, and he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who that is. We don't know. There's been, you know, conjecture. Maybe it was Luke. We know that it was not Timothy. Um, we know who it wasn't. We just don't know who that is. Either way, we know that he's asking someone to help, someone that's been there, someone that's co-labored, someone that's working for the same thing. And he's, like, he's just saying, look, uh, you... I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, another person there that's worked, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life who now have new citizenship as a result of Jesus. Like, look, these women, they're disagreeing. I'm asking them to stop, and I want you guys to help them. Why? Because we're family. The labor's more important than the offense. Deal with the offense. Get back to the labor. So there's that, okay? And, such, and, and I do. Like, I think it's a really interesting thing. Like, if we start with that, we read that first, and then we kind of play back everything that's said in this entire book. We're like, yeah, you could have very well been pulling a Nathan. Makes good sense. Especially in light of the uniqueness of the book of Philippians. That it is so incredibly encouraging, so incredibly favorable, just to praise them. And he's not messing with them, but he's telling them things that they should know, that they should agree with, that they should be like, yes, that's so good. And then he gets to them, he's like, yeah, if you believe all that, you need to, you know, bury the hatchet, but not in the bad way, in the good way. You know, the bad, anyway, sorry, I always thought that's a strange phrase, bury the hatchet, but anyway. So there's that, okay? So now we're going to continue on with verse 4 through 9. Let's read that. If you have any questions about that, if you'd like to sit down and talk over coffee about how that all may work, I'd love to. I think it's fascinating, but, but I'm also a nerd sometimes. But either way, verse 4. Here's his parting advice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your agreeableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers or brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so basically the way we're going to look at these is he he kind of lays out four things as parting advice for them. I'm normally not a points kind of guy. That's not the way that I learn. But when I read this, I just see like he's giving them four pieces of parting advice. And so I just want us to look at those. Um, And I will say this before we dive into these. This would be very easy to remove from the context of God and his passion, his will, his mission, his redemption, and place it into a self-help arena. Okay, because all of these things that he's saying, some of these things would have, pulled, would have been pulled directly out of modern wisdom, but now he's placing them in a context of, we're talking about things of God here, not things of, of self-help, not things of making yourself better, but things about the redemptive work of God that he has done in you. You're now a new creation. Your life is set on a different tra- trajectory. Your hopes, your dreams, they are being altered and changed to match those hopes and dreams that God has for you. So the context is not self-help, okay? It's not a book at Barnes & Noble. No, this is like in light of what Jesus has done, let's do these things. So the first, uh, when he kind of jumps in there in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The first is really simple, but it's really hard. Find your joy in Jesus always. Find your joy in Jesus always. A couple things about this. This is not the same thing as don't worry, be happy. Okay? It's not. I remember that song, and it was so catchy, but everybody hated it, but then everybody had to hum it. But it's it's not. It's not the same thing about. uh, Happiness is about what is happening, okay? But joy is different. Joy is different. And if it's something that can be found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, then we know if we can find it there, then we're not looking for it in our circumstance. Okay? So it's different. Joy is, is not circumstantial. Joy is a choosing. Joy is a choosing. Why do we know that? Because so frequently in Scripture, it's given as a commandment. It said, be joyful, have joy. It's these things that we must go after. It's not say, have a great day. Okay? It's not say, I hope your day goes great. I hope your car doesn't break. I hope you have a great lunch that's probably Thai food. That would make me happy. That's not what Scripture's saying. Scripture is saying, no, 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 have joyful, be joyful in this place. Find your joy in the Lord always. Not as simple as just don't worry, be happy. Happiness depends on what's happening around you. Joy is different. True joy depends on this, what's already happened in Jesus. Happiness depends on what's happening around you. True joy depends on what's already happened in Jesus. Joy in the life of a believer comes from this, knowing that no matter what, God has me. Regardless of the quality or the tenor of my day, my heart, my life, my soul is secure in Christ. Because whom he chooses to save, he does not choose to unsave. So my life is secure. Now that doesn't mean I go out and I live like a heathen. It doesn't mean that I do that. No, no, no. I respond in kind, and I live my life in a certain way, which these four pieces of parting advice are very much related to. But however good, however bad my day, God still has me. My joy needs to be based in that one author. I was reading him this week. I thought it, was, it summed it up incredibly well. And he just he put it like this. He said, this joy that we're talking about, it is a mental attitude, a life stance, 
Whereas happiness depends on what's happening, joy does not. Joy derives from a conviction that despite present circumstances, God is in control and will save those who belong to Christ. Joy derives from the Philippians' union with Christ and the promise of their partnership. The promise of their partnership, that being with Jesus. Joy is a choosing of where I allow my mind to be in the midst of all circumstances. That these things through Christ have already been done. They cannot be undone. And as a result, like my destination is set. My place in the kingdom is secure. Like I'm there. Now, again, it's not licensed to be horrible people because we can't do that. We can't put Christ to death day after day after day, Romans is going to tell us. But instead, joy is a choosing to accept the fact of what Christ has done has affected the entire eternal outcome of my life. And I can't undo it. There's great joy there. It's a choosing to look at the end result, the eternal result that is based on Christ and not based on me. And some days, like, here, here's the, the reality check or the gut check of this. Um, if we wait until things get bad to choose joy, we won't. If we wait until the wheels are falling off and everything's on fire and everything that we love is going up in smoke, we're not going to choose joy. We have to choose joy before that happens. We have to make a point to say, you know what, God, um, what you've done, miraculous, incredible, defies human logic. I want to base the position of my heart on that now, in this place, in this time. So when and if the wheels fall off, I'll remember. I'll remember. And so if you, believer, Christ follower, you're in a pretty good place in life right now, things are going pretty well, all the wheels are still on there, nothing's on fire. In this time, in this place, we need to choose joy, and we need to figure out what that looks like. We need to figure out what it looks like to set the, the hope of our trajectory on Jesus and Jesus alone, not our circumstance, even when it's good, so that when it turns bad, we look back and we remember what joy feels like. Because joy does have a, a feeling component. It's a choice, it's a choosing, it's a mental attitude, but there's, there are feelings attached to that. There are things that joy does for us. That's the reason that we confuse it with happiness so often, because joy, it does, it elicits happiness. And so you can imagine, like we're in the midst of everything going wrong. If we can choose joy, even in the midst of all of that, we might find a modicum, a little bit of happiness there, because there's joy. So choose joy now. Just choose it now. I can't promise you that things are going to go bad, but I can, I can pretty much say it's probably going to happen at some point. Things are going to go bad. They're going to go bad. So choose it while we can. And I think the beauty of this, too, is just understanding that joy is here to stay. Like, because of Jesus, because of the the quality that we would call efficacious, like he doesn't change, his ways don't change, his outcomes don't change, like joy is something that once we choose it and we figure out through the power of God how to live in it, it doesn't have to go anywhere. That's an amazing guarantee, an amazing promise that we can have joy in all situations. When happiness fleets, when enthusiasm fleets, we can still have joy. When the goodness of the day passes, we can still have joy. When life is just hard, and hard life comes, we can still have joy. The Philippians needed to know that because in the context of where they're living right now, it would be incredibly important. And they probably don't have the opportunity that we had because, to be honest, they were living in hard times. 
Like the, the life they were living was not easy. They were under persecution. Some of them would probably very soon see their brothers and their sisters killed. Life was not easy for them. Living under Roman occupation, Roman rule, being Roman citizens, but understanding that their citizenship was being changed from that of Rome to that of heaven. Like life was either hard now or it was about to get to, about to get there. So we have privilege. We have an opportunity. While things are good, find our joy in Jesus always. He continues on, after saying rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice, verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness, reasonableness, and that's a hard word in English, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Um, Here's our second point. They had to do it. Remember their context. It's important for us to remember where they are right now and what Paul is telling them to do. The second is this, display gentleness to the world around us. Display gentleness to the world around us. The Greek word there is just the idea of a forbearing spirit. A forbearing spirit. So no matter what comes, no matter if you're persecuted, no matter if you're assaulted, no matter if you're praised, no matter what, gentleness, meekness, humility, all of those things that already came before this passage, by the way. Go back to chapter 2. Read all of that. Having this mind among Jesus, you know, like Jesus. Go back and read all that. I'm not going to do it today because we've been there. Go back and listen to the message, whatever you want to do. But all of those things that have already come forth, um, he's telling them, look, display gentleness to the world around you. Us, display gentleness to the world around us. Why? Because it's going to be so odd. It's going to be so otherworldly, and it should be. It should be. For Christians at that time, again, persecution was coming, assault was coming, for them to remain meek, to remain humble, to remain forbearing. The Greek world, the Roman world, would have looked at them and they're like, how and why are you acting so stinking weird? That's what they would have said. Why? Because if they were carrying a card around that was displaying their citizenship, it would have changed. They were not who they once were. Romans by birth kingdom people by rebirth. They were not who they once were, so therefore their life should look different. If you have claimed Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you have said, I have renounced my sin, I'm doing my best to leave it behind, I'm trusting in the life, the death, the words, the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwelling me to give me the power to live this life, your life should not look like it did before you said those things. My life should not look the same as it did before I said those things, before I made those claims that Romans 10 say that we, uh, we declare Jesus as our Lord. Like, my life shouldn't be the same. And Paul's reminding them, like, who you were is not who you are. So therefore, be reasonable, be gentle, be meek. The world's going to look at you and it's going to be weird. If you have a tendency... Let me, let me change it. I don't want to come down on you. If I have a tendency to want to fight every time someone says something against me, about me, slightly offensive, my heart's not in union with Jesus. It's just not. Because the beauty of this, displaying gentleness to the world around them, you know who did it first and did it best? Jesus. Look at his life. He walked in a hostile environment, basically the equivalent of us crawling on our knees for 30 plus some odd years to be led to a cross, to be crucified, and he spoke up not once to defend himself. Could he? Yes. Could he have wiped them off the face of existence? Yes. But he didn't. 
He was gentle at all turns. The only people he ever got lippy with were the religious people. And they probably needed it. But to the rest of the world, those really weren't outsiders. They should have known the truth. Go back and read the latter parts of Matthew. There's different language there. But to the rest of the world, to the sinners, to the prostitutes, to the pagans, gentleness. At every turn. Why? So that they would see him as different. So that they would hear what he was talking about. The love that he was speaking of was not just lip service. It truly was unique, different, otherworldly. It was out of this world. Like, that's what he desired them to see. That's what we get to wear now. Again, go back to chapter 2. Read it. The reason this is so important is because what we're being changed into is not many Jesuses that save the world, but many Jesuses in the sense that the world gets to see Christ in us. And they can't see Christ in us if we're always wanting to fight. If we're always hurt, always offended, always it's us versus them and them versus us. That's not the way of Christ. It's just not. And this is hard. We often say, pick your battles. The reality is we should pick to not battle. And man, that's hard. It's hard. Display gentleness to the world around us. There's a purpose for it. Not so that we can be run over. Not so that we can be tortured. But so that the world may see Christ in us. That's why Jesus is in the form, I mean, Jesus is in the business of changing relationship, not just location. If salvation was all about where we were supposed to end up, the moment that we said, by grace through faith, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior, he would remove us from here and place us with him in eternity. But he doesn't. He leaves us here because he he wants those that have been redeemed to stay here so that those who are not redeemed can be. And one of the first ways that starts is the world looks at us and they see that we live, we function, we love, we respond differently. Why? Because we are. And they can be too. Display gentleness. Again, Jesus is our example. The world needs to see him, but now they have to see him in us. And it starts with a gentle spirit. Here's his third parting, parting piece of advice in this text. And we need to hear this one bad. I, I need to hear this one badly. Let me use good syntax and also make it personal. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus the root word of the Greek verb there, it's do not be anxious. It's kind of one word in Greek, um, but it, the root word of that actually means to tear apart. To tear apart. Now, let me, let me preface this particular section by saying this. I'm not talking about clinical medical anxiety, okay? I'm not talking about that. I am, but I'm not, okay? There are people who are prone medically to an anxious mind, anxious heart, anxious self, okay? And for those, I'm not saying do not seek appropriate medical care. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm all for it, as a matter of fact. But for the rest of us, and, and even for you, like if that's, your, if that's the, the place that you live, like, I mean, I'll be honest, like after my accident a couple years ago, man, I fought it. I had some problems in my brain. Like I would wake up at 2 a.m. sweating, scared to death. And if you don't know, I had a, I had a pretty bad motorcycle wreck two years ago this October. And it was, it was bad. It was rough. And, like, I would wake up for months on end and just in a panic. 
of like, what if this one thing would have been different? I would have been dead. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if I would have been going 10 miles an hour faster? What if he would have turned three degrees different? What if all of these things? What if, what if, what if? And I would stay awake for hours, and I would be soaking wet with sweat until finally I just had to confess, I, I'm not capable of dealing with this on my own. And so I sought, I sought professional help just to sit down with the guy. And their flyers are on the back table. He's going to be here to talk to us in a couple of weeks about the scope of their practice. Godly man and wants to help us get a handle on things. Sometimes we need that. But before we even confess that we need that, we need to confess this, that what anxiety does, be it clinical or be it circumstantial, be it what we choose to chase, what we choose to allow in, it tears us apart. That's the root of it. That's what anxiety does because it pulls us in all of these directions of worry and of fear. And that's the reason over and over in Scripture it says, do not worry. Do not be afraid. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your worries, cast your fears, cast your concerns on God. Let him deal with those. Those aren't yours. Get rid of them. Because the reason that God doesn't want us to have them is he doesn't want to crush our fun of being anxious, scared to death individual people that feel like we've had 12 cups of coffee. No, because he knows that what anxiety does is it pulls us apart at the very fabric of our being. We're double-minded, according to the book of James, unstable in all of our ways. And in this place, he's like, do not be anxious. Because it tears you apart. The words of Elsa, let it go. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. I'm not going to do that. I've got a daughter. She, man, she loved Frozen. Do not be anxious about anything. It wouldn't be enough just to say that. But instead, it says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In other words, don't spend so much of your energy, so much of your time being so worried and concerned about these things about life that they're tearing you apart. Instead, take time, stop, speak to God, which we call prayer, and you do it with two things in mind. Number one, supplication, which is literally, God, uh, I am just asking you, these are the things that I need. Maybe it's I need guidance, maybe I need help, maybe I need provision, maybe I need protection, but in the name of Jesus, I am telling you, here are the things that I need, but I'm also thankful for the things I have. Do not be anxious, but in everything, pray with supplication and with thankfulness at the same time. Very often, we, we struggle with that. Because we look at the things that we don't have or the things that we, that we think that we need, but we, we don't take time to look at the things that we have. And, and man, one way that this may work itself out, God, I need a better job. That's okay to ask. Don't ever feel guilty about asking God for things that you think that you truly need. If it's like a legitimate need, don't feel guilty. But at the same time, in the same breath, um, God, I would like a better job, but I'm grateful for the one that I have. And don't just say it because you think it's a magic incantation, but at a heart level. Be grateful. Maybe, maybe, yes, maybe you have a job in which you're underpaid, undervalued, underappreciated, under, 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 all of those things. But at the same time, maybe you have a job. And I'm not trying to get in your crawl here and make you feel guilty. I'm just reading what's on the page right here. Do not be anxious in everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Like the beauty, like this is, this is so crazy about what Christ has done, right? The fact that, number one, Christ redeemed us, that's nuts. Because I'm not worth it. You're not worth it either. Let me let the cat out of the bag. You're not. Okay, your sins, even if you just committed that one in comparison to a holy, holy, holy God, yeah, it, makes you, it just makes you totally nasty off limits. 
all of the ones I've committed make me totally nasty, off limits. There's no reason God should want me. But God did, and so he sent his son, his perfectly righteous son, his only one. Been with him for eternity, would be with him for eternity. He made a request, go and die in Matthew's place. Because he can't do it on his own. He can't do it at all. So that's crazy in itself, right? The gospel. The gospel should not make sense to us on any day, not even Wednesdays. Okay, it shouldn't make sense. And then to think as a result of by grace through faith and the, the veil being torn in half, now I have access to God, and I just, just don't have access to tell him that he's great, that he's amazing, to worship him, to ascribe worth to him. Yes, I get to do that. But at the same time, I actually get to go to him with the things that I need. I get to speak to the God of all creation, the God who made me, who fashioned me, who breathed life relationally into me, and I actually get to take to him the things that I need. Mind-boggling. Should not happen on any day, ever. But God says, I will make it happen. You just have to believe. Not by my works, not by my efforts, not by my good deeds, but by Jesus's. I can go to God instead of worrying about all of these things that could happen, that should happen, that would happen, all of these things. Instead of that, I can just go to God and say, God, number one, I trust you with the moment. I trust you with the outcome. I'm going to let you know the things that I need. I'm going to be grateful for what I have, and then I'm just going to trust you with the rest. If you see fit to make this happen, I trust you. If you see fit not to make this happen, I will trust you. But either way, I'll praise you. Pretty much every day I read at least one psalm. And when I get to the end of the book, I start over. And then I'll read a chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament, just the way that I do things. But the thing about the book of Psalms that used to drive me crazy, but now gives me such great peace, is that very often, most of the time it's David, sometimes it's other psalmists. But David, in one breath, he will say, God, I'm surrounded. I'm being crushed from all sides. I'm dying here. Things are really bad. Um, I wish that you would take my enemies off the map. Um, I wish that you would smite them. I still don't know that I can pray that. That's, that's a whole other story. But then at the end of almost all of one of these things, but he, there's always like this confession, um, but either way, I'll praise you. Even if my enemies crush me, I will praise you. And I'll tell people about you. Even if I'm destroyed, even if I'm snuffed out, God, I'm going to praise you. Why? Because you deserve it regardless of the outcome of me. And I'm just trusting you with that. I pray that one day I can pray like that. Some days I can't, to be honest. Because some days my circumstance dictate my joy, and they should not. And some days it's hard for me to trust God with the outcome when I feel like the current circumstance is just so bad and not right. But I've never had people around me trying to kill me. I've never been surrounded on all sides with people that had spears. Like, never been there. I've had flat tires. Not in a long, in other people's cars. None of my cars have had flat tires. I'm awesome. But, but either way, like the lesson from David and the lesson here, it's not don't worry, be happy, but it's trust God with the outcome. And if we're doing that, then worry kind of dissipates, fades away. But we can't do this unless we believe that God is in control, that God does have it, and that God loves us more than we can possibly understand. We have to have those things. That he's in control, he has it, and he loves us more than we could possibly understand. So do not be anxious about any 
thing. I love totality words in Scripture. Like, it says, don't, it's not saying do not be anxious about some things or most things. No, it's saying do not be anxious about anything. That means all the stuffs. Don't be anxious about any of it. And then it says, but in everything, by prayer, two totality words right there. Anything, everything, contrasting, but still totality. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And here's the promise that's attached to it in verse 7, which may be even better than the access that we have, but they're tied. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's kind of an if A, then B, which is out of this world amazing kind of a thing. If instead of worrying, you take all of these things to God, you trust Him with the outcome, then His peace that only His provides, that only He provides, will be supernaturally placed on you, and it'll blow your mind. Surpasses all understanding. In me, the way that I paraphrase, paraphrase that, it, it will blow your mind. I think it works. Not a Bible translator there. This peace that God offers is just the result of trusting God with my stuff. Trust God with my stuff, and then He will grant us peace from Him, through Him, for Him, on us, and it'll blow our minds, and then that peace protects us. That peace protects us, guards our heart, guards our minds from going back to that vicious hamster wheel of a cycle called anxiety that wants to tear us apart. If I ask you to raise your hands if you've been there, I guarantee 74.6% of you would raise your hands right now, and the rest of you would be lying. Because we're in church, and people lie, and you know, we're not in church. We are the church, but we're doing something that people call church. Don't make me get on that soapbox again, because I will. Um, but anyway, it'd make me look taller. So either way, anxiety's there. It's real. Here, he's like, don't, don't do it. Cast it away. Cast it away. And then, here we go. Here's the fourth part. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Again, if we were a self-help book, we would say something like, think positive. Think good things, good things will happen to you. Let me tell you, that's not true, okay? That's a lie. But again, context is everything. Context is everything. This is talking about the scope of God's truth. It's talking about the scope of God, the things that are honorable to God, the scope of what is just to God, what is pure in God, what is lovely in God, what is commendable in God, what is excellent to God, uh, what's worthy of praise in God. These things we think about. And so this isn't self-help at all. Instead, it's like, look, if we're going to spend our mental energies, if we're going to let our brains turn, and we're going to spend time dwelling on things, we have to understand that what we dwell on matters. What we dwell on matters. What we commit, commit mental energy to in the light of the gospel and what Jesus has done, what we commit our thoughts to, it matters. It matters. And so, like, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you don't have to turn there, just let me read it. Uh, it's just probably one or two pages over for you if you're there. But it says, If then you have been raised, raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And so basically it's like, look, if you're going to, to think on things, dwell on things, think on God's things. Think on His truth. Think on things that honor Him. Think on things that are pure in His sight. Think of the things that He's made excellent. Because if not, we're going to end up back where we started. Because if we've been changed, our thoughts need to be changed, the things that we pursue, because ultimately what it is, the things that we dwell on ultimately are the things that we pursue. The things that we dwell on ultimately are the things that we pursue. Whether we pursue them in body or whether we pursue them mentally, emotionally, physically, it doesn't matter, but it is what we pursue. It's the things that we think about all the time. That's what it looks like. And so this is just like, I mean, it's, it's, it's so poetic, and, and you want to get, get kind of fired up when you read it, but finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Like, we want to read it like that, but Paul's basically saying about, man, if we're going to dwell on stuff, dwell on God's stuff, because that's what we need to pursue. That's what we need to chase. That's where our heart needs to be set. Because where our heart and our mind is set, that is where we will go. Because think the opposite. Like again, if you go to Colossians again, Colossians actually gives kind of this uh, solution for this. He's saying, look, set your mind on things above. And then starting in verse 5, this is how it reads. In order to set our mind on things above, here's what it says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to read it. Put to death what is earthly in you. Again, because we need to think of God's stuff, His stuff, heavenly things. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the count of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked once walk when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. If we want to think on Christ, if we want to dwell on Christ, if we want Him to be the reward, we need to think on His things, His stuff, and not the earthly stuff. Because what we think on, what we dwell on, is where we will end up. And this is, man, to be honest, this is kind of a part of my sanctification, like there's passive sanctification from our perspective, the things that God does in us without us even asking as a byproduct of my salvation, as a byproduct of being a new creation. But then there's active sanctification on my part, your part too. And part of that includes what we pursue and then the other things that we put to death. Because believe it or not, as people who are yoked to Christ, it's a beautiful yoke, but as we are yoked to Christ, we are called to put these things that we've repented of, not just out of sight, out of mind, but we're actually called to put them to death. Do not allow them to have life in us anymore because all they want to do is steal that life that we give them. Put them to death. Those things are of this earth. We put them to death. Man, there's a laundry list right there. It's not everything, but some of those I guarantee someone in here is struggling with right now. Put it to death. You might not be struggling with it now, but you may struggle with it in two weeks. Put it to death. If we're going to think of things above, we can't get tied up in the things below. And that sounds awfully catchy. I don't mean it to be. I'm not a catchy guy, but it's just the reality. If we want to think of the things above, we can't be tied up in the things below. And you say, man, that sounds really legalistic. No, it's not legalistic. It's not legalistic. 
It's what it looks like to follow after a Savior who gave up everything so that we could know God and be known by Him and make Him known. And then we live in response to it. So that means He's worthy of us striving, working, praying diligently to kill things that do not belong in our life. He's worth it. At every turn, He's worth it. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy because these are the things that we were known by, that we walked in, that we lived in before Jesus, and they will try to come back. They will try to come back. And when they do, confess, repent, confess to someone else, seek, them, seek their prayers on your behalf, do everything that we can to put them to death. Put them to death. Matthew 6.33, also in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, similar idea except in this part it says hey do not be anxious do not be anxious don't worry about what you'll wear what you'll eat what you'll drink all of these things look at the birds of the field look at the flowers of the field look at all of those man they're well taken care of don't you know that God loves you more than any of those things so why should you worry about it he has you so seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you this is not prosperity gospel this is the gospel that God says I will take care of you I will take care of you so don't be anxious. What we dwell on matters. Choose to dwell on God and His things. Now here's, here's the kicker. You might say, I don't know what His things are. Well, you're in luck. You're in luck today because His things are right here. All of His things that we need to know so that we can know Him, follow Him, love Him deeper, make Him known well. They're all here. And so if you don't know what His things are, man, you can read it. If you can't read it, you can listen to it. If you can't listen to it, you can ask someone around you that's spiritually mature to help you understand it. Believe it or not, it's there. And I'm not going to call myself lazy or want any of you lazy if we're not trying to do that, but we could be. But that would be mean talk. And I'm not a mean talking kind of guy. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, Paul makes some pretty bold claims. The last section that we read last week that Zach taught on, he said, look, if you need somebody to imitate, imitate me. Imitate me, not because I'm perfect, but because I know I'm not. Not because I have arrived, but because I know I'm not. And then in this place, Paul's like, look, these things that I've told you, I've told you because I've loved you. And I want you to, to have life, progressive life in Jesus. Do them. Go after them and do them. If you know Jesus, you've been redeemed by Jesus, do, do these things. And God will be with you. I love simple truth in Scripture. Like, I need it. There are some things that we do. We have to commit a lot of mental exercise to. But the older I get, the longer that I follow Jesus, uh, the more often I find these things in Scripture. And I'm just like, yes, thank you for just telling me what to do. Thank you. That's all I really want at the end of the day. Because I trust God with the outcome. Not perfectly, but He's helping me there. He's getting me there. But I'll, I'll be honest, like more days than not, like I'm, I'm, I'm graced to be in that situation where I trust Him with the outcome. And then I read this, Paul to the Philippians, like, look, what you've learned, what you've received, what you've uh, heard in me and seen in me, practice these things, do these things, and the God of peace, He'll be with you. Again, it makes no sense that He redeems us makes no sense that he wants to hear from us. And it definitely makes no sense that he's going to be with me 
But that promise is there a lot. That he'll be with us. And he'll be with you. He'll be with me. The God of everything. With us. It's crazy. I would encourage you this week to, to just those four things. Just to repeat. Display gentleness to the world around us. Ask yourself if you're capable. And if you're not, you may need to confess and repent and ask God to help. And you may need to confess and repent to someone else too so that they can hold you accountable. Understand that anxiety tears us apart, but God, he offers peace. If we just give those things to God, we trust him with the outcome, we go to him with the things that we need and thankful for what we have, and we trust him how he handles it. What we dwell on matters. Take stock of your day. I would, I would encourage you after one day, after one day this week, you pick one randomly. When you lay your head down at night, you kind of ask yourself, what did I think on most today? And this isn't to elicit guilt. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. But I think sometimes we need to take stock of where our heart is, where our mind is, because that's what we're pursuing. And at the end of the day, if you, if you thought about things that brought you anxiety more, if you thought about things that were of the world more, if you thought about those things, again, confess, repent, same answer. God's always there to hear us confess sin, repent of those, to turn from those literally. Maybe we just need to do that. And again, confess, repent to somebody else. Hey, took stock of my day yesterday. Things I thought on, they weren't God's stuff. How can we help? Maybe do that. And then just remember the promises of God. Said, you do these things, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for, for godly advice. That's not just to make us feel better. That's not just to make us act better. That's not just to make us look better. But, God, it's, you put it there so that we can live the way that you've called us to live. Be set apart. Be different. And not just for the sake of difference, but for the sake of, of your glory and for those who don't believe. And, God, I thank you. Like, it sounds crazy, but I thank you that we're surrounded by so many people that don't know you. In this city, God, this place, we're surrounded by people that don't know you. And the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we love them, it matters. The things that we convey our story matter. God, I pray you would use us as a faith family in this city to see your kingdom grow. Not so that we can brag on, on a church, church family called Origins, but God, so that we can sit back and be grateful for what you're doing, that your kingdom is growing, that your name and your glory is spreading. Thank you, God, you've called us to be different. I pray you would equip us and empower us to do so. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. A couple of announcements, and then Michael Burden is going to come up and... Um, read our benediction. A couple of things. Uh, first week of